Before we get started here, just a quick note. This is part two of a discussion about blended learning that I had with Sharina Henderson. And so if you haven't listened to part one, I would suggest you go back if you're not familiar with these terms. Part one is all of the theory about it, the, the terms that you need to know to understand what we're about to talk about here. So if you haven't listened to that, go back. Otherwise, listen on. Learning. We've all experienced it, but how does it happen? More importantly, how do we create powerful learning experiences that change people's lives? In this podcast, we'll explore the world of adult career change education, from learning theories to classroom experiences to the kinds of people who make life-changing education possible. So come learn with us. This is the future of professional education, powered by Thrive DX. All right, so let's talk about some of the benefits of blended learning versus traditional learning. And like I said, when we started off at HackerU, we did become a sort of blended learning experience, but it was really just doing the lectures in a virtual setting instead of in a classroom setting. It was the same kind of experience. But when we think about what blended learning could be um, versus a traditional learning experience, what are the benefits? Oh, wow. So blended learning has so many benefits. One of my key uh, soapbox issues is the concept of being a lifelong learner. And I think when you introduce a blended learning model, you give students the autonomy to take control of their learning themselves and to actually be the center of the learning experience. Mm -hmm. So blended learning is where you're shifting the center of the experience from a teacher-centered experience to a student-centered experience. Mm -hmm. And I think when you center the student, you're always gonna wind up with a better result because the students are now taking accountability, they're taking initiative, they're getting really getting into it. And I think it cements learning a little bit better. It also gives you the opportunity to, as we mentioned earlier, solve for some of those other challenges. So um, you get to use technology in more authentic ways. If you're teaching, um, I don't know, software development, for example, using a blended learning model, you're able to actually do some coding, check some things out, make sure that it actually works, test those things on your own, and then create learning experiences that allow the student to then take initiative and say, now that I've learned these things, what else can I take the initiative to learn based on what I've learned? Mm -hmm. So we, it, it gives the, the students the opportunity to put different tools in their hands to make their learning experience richer and more robust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good starting point for the benefits, the, the teacher-centric moving into a student-centric experience. Because again, going back to the research, going back to the theory, what, what we're learning about learning is that it can't just come from the teacher straight to the student's brain. It's, that's not going to be the most effective way of learning. And then if you think about adult learning theory, andragogy, um, that's all about student-centered learning. And it's, it's not to say that younger students don't need student-centered learning. It's to say it's even more important with adults. So, yeah, I, I would say that's definitely a, a big, big benefit. I guess another one is the flexibility that it gives potentially to the student, to the learner, which may be different in a grade school or, you know, up through a high school setting, but especially in an adult learning experience like the one that ThriveDX runs, Having the flexibility for as an as an adult learner, having the flexibility to whether it's review a video that you know where you missed a class or whether it's to do the learning that's outside of class, the asynchronous part on your own time whenever you can fit that into your schedule as opposed to you know in sort of a rigid structure that that flexibility can be really helpful too. I think it also makes the learning a little bit more authentic. Mm -hmm. It gives you the opportunity for authentic assessments. It gives you the opportunity for more hands-on learning that allows you to kind of figure it out, like discovery learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, let's let's flip over to what can go wrong because there's a lot of <laughs> stuff that can go wrong as we described. 
Um, I mentioned I mentioned flip learning as one of those things that you absolutely have to have support for those learners at home. You cannot expect yes. there's there's cartoons about this. There's stories about this. I taught you this. Why don't you know it? I've heard teachers say that it's that it's ridiculous. You cannot expect that somebody learns something without the support that they need and without the assessment and all of that stuff. So um, flip learning, just you, you have to have that support at home. What else can go wrong with blended learning? Um, so many things, just like there are so many things that can go wrong in just a traditional learning setting. Um, the biggest thing with blended learning is planning, right? So it's not a set it and forget it. It's not a okay, well, um, while I'm, you know, doing this other thing, all of my learners are reading a book. Okay, so when they're reading a book, what are they doing as they read the book? How is this a learning experience? What are they expected to get from it? So what I've seen, I've seen a lot of teachers say, like just your example of flipped learning, oh, I found a video on YouTube. I'm just going to have my students watch that video on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And then when they come into class, they're going to do this activity based on that video. They're going to do um, this assignment based on that video. And we're going to have this assessment based on that video. Mm-hmm. And so you have to remember as the instructor that there, to your point, there has to be some support. So, and you have to be very deliberate about what that support is. And you cannot overestimate what your students have learned or what they're going to be able to do as a result of watching this video. Mm-hmm. And we haven't even covered the fact that, I don't know about students that you used to teach, but the students I taught, like at the beginning of class, I would all, and I would always have a backup planned. So at the beginning of class, I would always say, all right, stand up if you did not watch the video. And usually, and I was great at flip classroom, like that was my thing. Half my class would not have watched the video, but I already knew that and I planned for that. Mm-hmm. And so, I never assumed, oh, they didn't watch the video because they didn't care. No, I assumed half of them aren't going to watch the video because somebody's internet isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to have an emergency after school. Somebody's going to have to do something else. Somebody's going to forget. Some of them are going to get halfway through and they're going to go, what? I'm really confused. And so I would separate my class into those three sections. I watch the video. I get it. I got this. I can do things on my own. Mm-hmm. I watched the video. Probably didn't finish. I'm more confused than I was when I started. And then those students would come directly to me for the the small group support. And then the other group of kids who didn't watch the video at all, I had stations set up in my room with tablets where their turn is to go watch the video. So, and then you're, you're, um, but I was a classroom teacher and we, we tend to think in terms of punishment. So your punishment is, I only have five tablets. So only five of you can watch the video at a time. So you guys have to choose which five get to go first. The other five, have to try to do this discovery activity to try to figure out what the lessons from the video were without the benefit of the video, and then you guys are going to switch. And so with the, the biggest thing that I've seen go wrong without the proper planning is that you walk into a classroom that's supposed to be flipped, and it is chaos because the teacher cannot do their teacher-led activities because they're trying to wrangle the other 20-something kids mm-hmm. who have nothing to do because they haven't watch that video because they didn't understand Mm -hmm. what was happening in the video and so you have lots of kids sitting around doing nothing you have other kids in chaos and you have teachers who are like pulling their hair out because they're saying oh my goodness this is just harder than just traditional lecture forget it i'll just go back to traditional lecture Mm -hmm. the other pitfall is you say oh, this is really hard. I don't have a lecture plan, so I won't go back to traditional lecture and we won't do anything today. Or we'll just watch the video that you all were supposed to watch at home. Or we'll so just watch cat videos. You're going to all watch me, <laughs> watch me lecture. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's what you just described is that's exactly when I was at, at Riverdale Country School. It's exactly what I did to build out flipped learning with another teacher. I was um, working with a physics chemistry chemistry teacher on building a flipped learning classroom and there's there actually one other thing that I want to come back to cuz you mentioned flipped classroom which is a little bit different from flipped learning flipped classroom is sort of the application in a traditional classroom setting whereas flipped learning would be 
applicable in really any experience. But a flipped classroom specifically is what Sharina described, where you have the students, they go to stations, okay, you're ready for this, you're going to move on, and you're not ready for this, you go to the iPads. We were lucky enough to have enough iPads. Um, we were able, I was at a very wealthy school, and so the classroom that we were doing this in, we just fully funded it, and they had an iPad for every student. And so the students... Yeah, not every school is that lucky. Dade County Public Schools, I had to go ahead and buy those on my own. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can have another, we actually have another episode coming up about <laughs> inequity in education with uh, Taurus Mullins. So, a little future plug there. Um, another thing that I want to talk about with what can go wrong is, and, and this is something, so I, I did my master's in education starting in 2009. This is something we were talking about back then. And it's still completely true that the emotional connection online is not the same as a physical face-to-face connection. And everyone who's listening, I'm sure, has felt this to some extent, the notion of Zoom fatigue, right? You're, you're spending your life on Zoom and you're like, oh my God, I just want to sit down with an actual person. Um, that That carries over to the student experience as well. And so... One of again, one of the sort of perils of blended learning is thinking that, okay, if we connect students through video, it'll be the same as connecting them face to face or having an experience face to face. And you actually have to be just a lot more intentional about building those emotional connections and supporting the student emotions in a in a blended learning experience than you should be doing this in a real in a traditional physical classroom, but, you need to do it even more in a blended learning experience or the students will just feel disconnected. And the the experience that I had in grad school, this was way before we had you know reliable video connections and good online learning solutions. And so the, the, the online learning experiences that I had were completely text-based and it was, you know, here's an assignment, you need to do the assignment by the end of this week and then there's going to be conversation in the chat room on the assignment and for some reason they seemed to feel like that was enough i have never felt so disconnected from other students in a class Mm -hmm. i learned a lot i I really learned in a different way from doing the online learning experience because i had you know you weren't responding in a classroom setting you were able to really think about your response and base it in the reading and you know all of that stuff that makes for a, a different sort of level of engagement but the engagement was with the text and not really with the the other students in the class and it was draining yeah and then the other thing is technology has to work that's the biggest yeah that's biggest kind of component important. of this <laughs> The technology has to work. I've I've also seen, like, even when I think about just the challenges of being virtual because of the pandemic, I think about just technology not working. And so you have kids logging in and the teacher can't get in or the t- the mm-hmm. the network is overloaded or something is just buffering and spinning and you can't get to the video. And something that you brought up um, about, like, flipped learning in general that I that I'd like to also mention is that when you're doing any type of flipped learning in an asynchronous setting or in a virtual setting the students have to know and understand what to do they have to be able to get in there and figure it out because that's also what goes wrong Mm -hmm. students can be really confused and if you haven't laid things out properly they may not follow the sequence or the right order of lessons or of learning and it makes the learning really disjointed and they don't mm-hmm. get what you created for them to get because they have to make the connections. I always used to tell my students, my job is to be a teacher. And if you're just listening, and your job is to be a student. So if you're just listening and I'm just talking and no learning is happening, then I'm not a teacher, I'm a talker. And you're not a learner, you're just a listener. Mm-hmm. And so you have to make sure that instruction is actually happening. And you have to remember that just because you put these activities together or this learning together or these videos together that doesn't necessarily equate a learning experience Mm -hmm. yeah you know and and something that you said earlier when you were describing your classroom you you said something about how if a student came in and they hadn't done the watch the video that 
you would assume not that they didn't want to watch it, but you would assume there was a reason they were there was an emergency at home. They their internet went out, whatever that was. I, I think an easy pitfall with blended learning because in a blended learning experience, the teacher is really required to do even more upfront planning than in a traditional classroom experience, and there's there's a lot less opportunity and this is the reason for the more upfront planning, there's a lot less opportunity to course correct if something isn't going quite right. You have to get it right because you're not going to be there to fix it. And so I think a pitfall that comes along with that is, as a, you know, from a teacher's mindset, I've spent all of this time putting all of this stuff together for you, the student. Why couldn't you just go and watch it? And it it sort of goes back also to that emotional support thing that I was talking about that we have to, as, as educators, we have to be really aware of, number one, the fact that our students actually do want to learn in almost every case. There are some students, yes, that you could point to and say, okay, that person just really didn't want to be in school. They didn't want to learn. Like, okay, yeah, that happens. But most of the time, students want to learn. And the reason that they can't or that they don't is that something is keeping them from it. And so as an educator, we want to be thinking about well, what are what are those pitfalls? What are those things that are going to block them from learning and really come at it with that attitude that you described of um, just assuming, really assuming positive intention? There, there's some reason that the student couldn't do this because otherwise they would do this. So let's figure that out as opposed to just blaming the student. Well, you didn't learn it, so now you're going to do badly on the test or something. I think another uh, another thing to to talk about here is you mentioned the technology has to work, which is absolutely true, and I really experienced that, like I said, with my kids' education. But also, just using the technology in a less than optimal way is another one of the things that can go wrong. Where, so I, I mentioned this again in in describing my daughter's experience, using a webcast instead of an interactive meeting for. A, what is actually a live classroom session. And so if you're, I'm, I'm sure people here are familiar with webcast versus a live meeting by now, but just to make absolutely sure that they are, the webcast feature means I'm the person hosting the webcast. I can talk, you can listen, but you can't interact with me. So it's like if you were watching a TED talk. A, an interactive meeting, like a Zoom meeting or a Google Meet or a Go-To meeting or whatever that you would typically have, everyone can talk, and it's sort of you—you you assume that the people are going to talk at the right time. And I think I know what was happening is the teachers were setting up webcasts to prevent themselves from being interrupted by the students at home. I know this was happening because they told me that's what they were doing. <laughs> so. <laughs> I assumed positive intention at first. Hey, so let me show you how to use Google Meet. Oh, no, no. We don't want to be interrupted. So, okay. The problem, is, the problem is that if a student at home has a glitch, has a misconception, has something that they don't understand, they don't have any way to contact the teacher. And so then my daughter would try to write in. They were using the Google ecosystem. And so she would try to write into the teacher through Google Classroom. Hey, the video is not working. Hey, the audio is not working. And, and there were instances where she and other students were posting to the teacher because that was the only method of communication that they had with the teacher. Hey, we can't, we don't know what you're doing. We can't see the classroom. And there was no response. And it was because, again, they weren't using the technology the way that they needed to. If in a virtual setting, you have to track the chat. You have to track the, you know, the reactions if they have that in the, in the tool that you're using, raised hands or whatever. You have to track those things. And if you don't, it doesn't matter if the technology technically works. It's not going to be a good learning experience. It can be an alienating experience. I, oh, yeah. My my nine-year-old had experiences um, where the teacher would mute the chat and block <laughs> and close the chat out and block it so no one could, you you can't unmute. So she's already, you know, given the, the directive that if you unmute in the middle of the lesson, it's going to be really bad, kids. Um, mm. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Another thing, and and Sharina, this goes. I think you can speak to this better than I can. The uh, because of your your background in instructional design, but measurement and assessment, and this is something that 
again, has, that I've discussed in this podcast, but can you talk about the importance of measurement in a blended learning experience? Oh my goodness, yes. So you have to assess every single step of the way as you're doing blended learning. The first thing that you need to figure out is why are you doing blended learning? So what's what's your end game? What's your goal? What's the purpose? Is it that you have this cool technology and you just want to use it? Or is it that it's really going to enhance the learning experience? So how are you using the technology and why are you using it? What are the expected outcomes? So you want to make sure that you align the technology that you're using to the most authentic way that the student or the learner is going to use whatever it is that you're teaching them. So if you're teaching them um, cybersecurity, how are they going to use the tool to simulate cybersecurity experiences as they're doing this blended learning? Because if they're not using the tool, then we're missing the opportunity. So we got to find ways for them to use that tool. How do you then measure their use of the tool? So you got to measure their use of the tool. Are they using it enough? You have to measure the use of the tool. Are they using it correctly or properly? You have to then measure what is the deliverable or the outcome from the tool that we're getting. And then you have to look at, is there another tool? Because that's the cool thing about technology, right? It's always evolving. Is there another tool that will help us to get to this outcome faster? Mm. So you, you have to measure all of the learning outcomes, but then you also have to measure the student. So how is the student interacting with this piece of technology? Are they getting what they need? Is it meeting their needs? Is it user-friendly? And when you introduce technology, you also introduce the set of personal anxieties that come with that because so many of us have grown up telling ourselves, oh, this is hard. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, I can't use it. Oh, I don't know how it works. And so that's already a huge learning curve. So you also have to measure, are my students learning with the technology or despite the technology or with the enhancement of the technology? So Mm -hmm. you also have to measure the technology and how it's being used in addition to how your students are learning. But you also have to be adaptive. So that's the thing that makes blended learning the actual opportunity. It's the opportunity for adaptive learning. So how do we pivot when my students are not showing these learning outcomes that I'm expecting? And so you have to measure, 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 measure. It also gives you the opportunity for what we call personalized learning, not individualized learning, but personalized learning where the student's learning matches what they particularly need in order to meet the deliverable. Mm -hmm. And using blended learning and using technology can help you do that, but you have to assess every step of the way and you have to be very, very clear about what you're assessing. I would also take it a step further and say that anytime you're assessing anyone, they need to know what that assessment is going to be. They need to know that they're being assessed and they need to know how to do well on that assessment. Mm -hmm. So the days of like trick questions and pop quizzes, like those days are over. Um, We've done lots of research and we know that those are not effective tools for learning and learning mastery. Mm -hmm. So we gotta make sure that the students know that they're being assessed, they know how they're being assessed and they know how to do well on, on said assessments. Yeah. And then we have a plan. So what's your plan when the assessments tell you or the data tells you that you're not getting the outcomes that you're that you're looking for? How do you pivot? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, it's, it's important to say that obviously measurement and assessment is critical in any kind of learning experience. This is not just something that's limited to blended learning, but it it's incredibly important in a blended learning experience. Um, it, it also occurred to me as, as you were describing that and you're talking about uh, um, pop quizzes and, and whatnot, there's opportunities in a blended learning experience to set to really leverage the power of some of the technologies that are out there in ways that wouldn't necessarily happen in a traditional classroom. One of those is spaced repetition and the ability to use a spaced repetition software as part of the asynchronous learning experience. And if you're not familiar with spaced repetition, it's basically the idea that there's a there's a sort of a forgetting curve, Ebbinghaus's curve is what it's based on. And uh, when you learn something, the knowledge starts to fall away over time. If you then relearn it, the knowledge falls away slower and then slower again the next time you relearn it until it becomes more of a plateau and more cemented in your brain. 
and with an asynchronous learning experience, you really have the opportunity to use spaced repetition to your advantage in ways that typically just aren't used in a classroom setting. Um, but it's it's incredibly powerful. It's a really, really effective thing. We're actually looking at ways to build that into the Thrive DX programs right now. One of the other cool things about um, the opportunities for assessments in blended learning is that blended learning can give you the the leverage to use mastery learning mm. where you have your um, your mastery threshold of where you want the students to be, where you want your learners to be, and you help them get there iteratively. Mm -hmm. um, the last thing that I, I remember I forgot to say is that when when I used to do a flipped classroom or blended learning every single day, because flipped classroom was just a component of the blended learning experience that I created when I was a teacher, um, I would do assessments every day. And I was doing all kinds of assessments every day. I was doing formal assessments with by way of exit tickets. I was doing um, informal assessments like, all right, did you all watch the, like that first opening? Who watched the video and understood? Who watched the video and was confused? Who didn't watch it at all? That was an assessment for me. That was an assessment to say, maybe that video wasn't the best video. Maybe um, that video was confusing. Maybe the students are having difficulty because maybe there's something else that they haven't learned. And so just consistent consistently assessing them and they they were aware that they were consistently being assessed which made them want to do their best mm -hmm. but it also gave them the the freedom and created a community of learning where they were like oh i didn't get that at all or oh that didn't make any sense to me so they were even more up up front and open about what they didn't get. And if I neglected to assess them, they came to me and self-assessed. Yeah, so I did that activity and I just want you to know that I only got three out of six and either the activity is broken or I don't understand, I need you to reteach me, thank you. <laughs> wow. And so you're able to, yeah, <laughs> it, it happened a lot. Um, you're able to cultivate learning through assessment in a blended environment in a way that you are not really able to in a traditional learning environment. Nice, yeah. All right, and that sort of leads us into what do we have to do for blended learning to work? Okay, well, um, so you have to look at your learner ecosystem and you have to make sure that your learning ecosystem, which is all of the things that you need to produce a learning experience are in place. So that means like all of the technologies in place, all of the curricular things are in place, what assessments you're going to use are in place. And then what are the logistics of how your students are going to navigate through all of these pieces and all of these tools? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the pre-planning up front. There is a ton of planning that has to happen up front. But the, the win for that is that once you get it going, your learning experience becomes an autopilot type of situation. And so the only thing that you have to continually do is assess, look at the assessments, pivot based on the assessment. Mm -hmm. But your ecosystem is set and it becomes just a rinse and repeat type of situation. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that all of the planning is there ahead of time. Yeah. Which is really hard. I mean, we're not trying to undersell it. That is that is a difficult thing to do well. But like Sharina said, it's it's it just it, it pays off in in huge ways when it when it when you do it that way. And that's the experience that she's had in her classroom. It's the experience that I've had working with that chemistry teacher when we really implemented this in a full class. It's the payoff was huge. That chemistry teacher that I was mentioning said to me, she she worked on this with me over a period of three years, sort of refining this. And at the, maybe in the third year, she said to me that her students' scores were higher, their, their scores on the same tests. And she was doing an actual A-B test. She had other chemistry classes where they didn't do flipped learning. She said the students' scores in the flipped classrooms were higher. The student satisfaction was higher. And the students in those classrooms were actually telling her, please don't go back to traditional teaching At, to the point that she said, I have to stop running the experiment because it, it worked. This is all I'm going to do going forward. It's incredibly effective. But she, oh my God, she spent so much time doing all of the pre-planning and all of the thinking through and then the tweaking, you know, this, okay, this didn't work quite right. So the next time I do it, 
which is you know two classes from now or something. I'm going to revise this thing so that it works better. There was a massive amount of work, and it all has to be done up front because then her experience of being in the classroom was I'm going to be where the student needs me as opposed to, mm-hmm. like you said, I'm going to be at the front of the classroom going, guys, guys, I got to tell you this thing that I forgot <laughs> to put in. You know? It definitely changes the game. It definitely changes the game. It changes the game as a teacher and as a learner. It makes your experience teaching so much richer. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's those, it, it reminds you why you became a teacher in the first place. It's those eureka moments. It's watching your learners across the classroom go, oh, oh, I get it. Oh, it makes sense. And then they start like, I can tell you countless stories because I, I did flipped classroom for years um, when I when I discovered it because I, I, I thought I discovered it. right. <laughs> so when I discovered it, I was just baffled at how no one else was doing this. Like mm-hmm. you have to do planning as a teacher. And yes, it's a lot of planning up front, but it's so, so worth it in the end. And I was just looking around like, why is no one doing this? And all the other teachers were like, oh, you're crazy. Oh, that's too much. But it really, really changed the way my learners moved Mm -hmm. and the way they did things and the way they interacted in the classroom. And my classroom became the learning community that we all dream of Mm -hmm. as educators. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Another part of this is the, the student and teacher training, which is really critical um, something that we did, I think, very well as we pivoted to blended learning at HackerU was that we, I created, <laughs> I should say, uh, a ton of training for our teachers. And we did, we rolled this out in a way that all of our teachers who, by the way, are not professional teachers. These are, we hire experts. We don't hire professional educators. We hire people who are really, really heavily into the field that they're teaching and then we make them teachers and so we not only now needed to train people how to teach but also how to teach online and so the teacher training was very effective and a lot of teachers felt and they told me this that they they were very very grateful for the training that we had done and we've continued to evolve that and and that's sort of become one of our uh, bread and butters here is just the the quality of our teacher training the thing that I didn't do well was the student training side of it. And I could go back and say, well, that actually wasn't my job responsibility. But really, I should have done student training on this as well, because it's not just training the teachers. It's a different experience for the students. There's different expectations. The thing that I mentioned about turning the camera off, we we had to kind of go back and regroup and say, okay, so we can't require that the cameras stay on because these are adult learners. Universities won't let us do that. But we can say to this to the learner, to to the whole class really, so you know, if you if you leave your camera off, the learning experience is not going to be as good for you, but also for the rest of the class. And so we highly recommend that you turn it on, but we couldn't require it. But that was something I told the teachers to do this, but it was something that we really had to go back and keep addressing. And we've, it's been a continual issue all the way through um, that maybe could have been prevented to some extent with more student training. Yeah, that's usually the piece that most people forget. It's you do all this planning, you know exactly what you're going to do, but you have to make sure that the students understand what is the routine, what is the path that I'm supposed to follow to get these things done, what are the what are the what if statements that happen in my learning environment. So if I don't watch the video, then what do I do? If I am confused, where do I go? If I finish this activity, what's my next step? If this doesn't make sense, how do I get support? How do I get help? And then the other thing is, when am I going to get help? So Mm. one of the biggest components of any type of blended learning um, situation or scenario is making sure that the student knows where they're going to get support, how to get support, and when to get support. So if it's, oh, send your instructor a Slack message. 
Is it send the Slack message during class? Is it send the Slack message after class? Is it send the Slack message as soon as I'm confused? Mm -hmm. Is it send the Slack and then wait until 15 minutes before class to get a response? And so one of the biggest things that can throw off the whole entire learning experience is student confusion. Mm -hmm. So you wanna make sure that your students understand how to walk through your learning experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another part going back to the to the pre-planning is creating that feedback loop with your students, with your, your learners, because some of that can actually be automated for an asynchronous learning experience mm -hmm. where you have auto responses. We do this in Canvas. If you have a quiz, the moment you finish the quiz, you get feedback on the quiz through the automated responses. And that's a really effective way for students to learn what they did right and wrong especially if you turn that into a formative learning experience and say, not only this is what you got wrong, but why don't you go back and check that out and then retake the quiz or, you know, do this other assessment or something that's, or this other project that's going to build on that. But creating that feedback loop that as part of the pre-planning, it's, it's not just information delivery. You have to know what the students, as we've been talking about, you have to know what the students have learned, do that measurement, do that assessment, but then get that feedback to the students because there is so much of this that becomes the, the student's responsibility. And we, as the, as the educator, have to go back and say, well, this is the stuff that you need to work on next. This is the stuff that, you know, whether it's something that you, you didn't get right or the next thing you need to know or whatever, that feedback loop really has to be solid. Yeah. And you have to make sure that students know what's formative, what's summative, mm -hmm. what's graded, what's not. Um, and, and, and it's also helpful to give them an idea of where to focus most of their energies. So yeah, you took this formative assessment, you got four out of five, that's great, keep going. Or you took the summative assessment, you got three out of five, just reread or review, but don't necessarily spend too much time on this. Mm -hmm. Or this assessment's really important, please take another hour and redo it, or whatever that, whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. So just being very clear for students to help them learn how to set their own expectations for themselves. Yeah, totally. So another thing that, that we wanna also make sure to consider is the student technology as well as the, the teacher technology, but making sure that that technology is there, is working, is adequate. And it's, if you're, if you're doing an experience like ours, like a, like a boot camp, we can require that someone comes with a laptop and that has to be their laptop. They have to have purchased it, but we can't, we can't exactly say you have to purchase a $3,000, $4,000 laptop to take our program. And so some people come, we, we give a minimum spec on it and some people come with the minimum or even below the minimum and then struggle because of that. Um, in a in a more traditional setting, in a in a K twelve school, say, you might have more control over what technology the students have because you're providing it. But in either case, you you got to make sure that that technology is there and it's solid, and that the students have the support they need to make sure it's running. We actually set up a help desk in the cafeteria at Riverdale. And we, we literally stood at the desks during lunch and during a little break period that we had. And anyone who had a problem with literally any technology, not just school-issued technology, we wanted to encourage them to come. Anyone who had a problem could come to the desk and say, my laptop's not working. I can't log into this thing. My iPhone's not working. I, I don't know how to do an upgrade. You know, like whatever the, the thing was, and we would fix it because that support for the student technology has to be there. And then obviously, you also need that kind of support for the instructor technology training and uh, the actual equipment. Yeah, and that, that leads directly into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is making sure that you curate the learning yeah. experiences. Yeah. So you have to curate, curate, curate. If there's nothing else that you take away from this conversation, take that with you. You can't just go to YouTube and grab videos and say, oh, this video is about 
you know, understanding square roots. And that's what I'm teaching. So I'm just going to throw this one in. No, you have to put yourself in the mindset of your students and watch everything that they're watching. Go through every example that you have them going through for assignments and activities. You have to go through the assignment, the assignments and the activities and make sure that they are meeting your learning objectives. Make sure that the instructions are clear. Make sure that it's a thing that is connected to the lesson that you're delivering and it's not obscure. Make sure that, to your point, that it works for their technology. If I'm using, if I'm having my students download a file or download a video, that's going to require so many resources and they have technology that's a little bit older because, you know, of whatever their situation is, is that going to really work for them? Mm -hmm. Because the one thing that you don't want in a blended environment is the opportunity for student frustration. Mm -hmm. Because once the students shut down, it's going to take so much more effort and energy to get them right back up to where you want them. So you have to curate every single piece of everything that you have built into the learner ecosystem, every technology tool, and you have to use it from the perspective of the student. Mm -hmm. So not on your high power laptop, grab a, a laptop that's the average of what's out there in the market and say, hmm, I wonder would this work? Right. Not using your VPN, not using your super fast network. What's the average specs that the average user mm -hmm. is gonna have? And is this technology going to work? Is this activity going to work? Is this video going to work? And is it connected to what I need them to be able to do? That testing, that's such a good point that you you can't assume that because your laptop or your whatever your device is, that because that one works that the students will. You really do need to test in, in all those different scenarios. And hopefully if you're in a, a more traditional setting or, or in a boot camp even, you have an IT team that could actually help you with that testing or provide you the equipment that you need to test it. But the act of doing that is so important because a lot of times you'll get a student who comes in and says, I couldn't watch this because my, whatever, my laptop can't handle the specs of the video that you gave us. That's not their fault. <laughs> that is that is the fault of the technology, and, and we need to make sure that we spot that if we can before it happens. I've had situations where I've said, oh, I'm going to assign this video, not realizing that I could see it because I had a subscription to that particular website oh, or service God, yeah. <laughs> that my students didn't, didn't have. And so yeah. they'd log on and they'd say, oh, I have to sign up for something or, oh, I have to log into something or this isn't working for me. So, yeah, you got to test everything that you have in that right. ecosystem. Right. Yeah, that whole thing. I've seen that play out where <laughs> yeah. the instructor's like, I'm going to assign this, whatever, Amazon video for you to watch and not knowing that the students may not have Prime. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, <laughs> it's something you got to test too. Um, basically, I think the, the message here is put yourself in the shoes of the learner as you test mm -hmm. and, and really make sure that you go through the experience the way that they would go through the experience, not the way that you think they would go through the experience. So, all right, to finish out, what are some other quick tips? If somebody wants to apply blended learning whether they're in a traditional school setting, whether they're in a boot camp, if somebody wants to apply this, what are some of the, the things that we can say real quick that they need to, to consider? Okay, so first you wanna be very intentional about how you're gonna do it and about the learner outcomes. So if you know that you want learners to be able to build model houses, make sure that your blended learning experiences scaffold up to that desired outcome. Mm -hmm. As you're planning, you want to make sure that you keep learning principles front of mind. So you want to make sure that it's not just a collection of videos or a collection of activities, but they're actually educationally sound mm -hmm. and they actually give your students the opportunity or your learners the opportunity to have active learning experiences, to blend in social learning and to blend in these things that we know are effective. Biggest tip ever, blend to the extent that your learning environment needs it. Don't overdo it. It's not the time to say, I need seven apps, five activities, three labs. No, figure out what is the least amount of blending that your, that your environment can benefit from. Start there and then you can always build up and you can always add. Mm. Um, another big tip, you want to identify your instructor to learner touch points and the desired places of most impact and significant value add. So you wanna make sure that wherever the instructor and the student need to be connected, 
that you are building in those touch points into that experience. Mm -hmm. um, again, you want to determine how you're going to measure the learning. Only measure what is necessary because you're going to be doing so many assessments that you will overwhelm yourself. Don't forget, though, to assess yourself through the process. So you're assessing how did I deliver this? How was this experience for the student? Is this the most effective way to deliver this learning in addition to are my students learning? And then you want to build your content based on the needs and the blend tolerance of your learners. So if your learners are used to traditional face-to-face -face interaction and face-to-face -face learning, you want to find ways to still keep that in and factor that into your blended experience. So you don't want to take away the things that are working. You just want your blended experience to enhance what you already have or what you're already working with. So instead of doing maybe 20 hours of traditional lecture, you may want to do 12 hours of traditional lecture and eight hours of blending mm -hmm. if you're creating 20 hours worth of a learning experience. I've built <laughs> blended learning experiences, but my first time building one was really bad. And <laughs> um, because what I tried to do was I tried to replicate what I had done that worked for me. And um, yeah, it's, it's really hard when you're not the person during, doing the planning um, oh. So it was it was really bad. Like I I didn't do a good job. It was one of those um, learn the hard way type of things. I still I still got paid for the blended learning opportunity that I built, and um, this place they loved it. It was it was a training that I that I built. They loved it, but it was really not. It wasn't great. It was it was really bad. Do you want to talk about? And that? it was bad because yeah, we can talk about yeah. it. It was bad because I did not take into account their learner needs. Mm. I didn't know the learners. I just took their word for who the learners were and I didn't do my own needs assessment. And that's when I learned as an instructional designer that like it does not matter what the company says to you, what the person who's contracting with you says to you, what the instructor says to you, you have to do your own needs assessment because they cannot do a needs assessment for you. And they can answer questions, but their answers are only based on what they think. You have to have access to the learners. Mm -hmm. Lots of companies don't like to give you access to the learners because they don't like to reveal that they're using either a consultant or an instructional designer, mm -hmm. but you have to do whatever you can to get as authentic a read on those learners as possible. And if you can't access them directly, you have to have data that they've collected on those learners. You cannot take their word mm -hmm. for it yeah um and so i built way too many things into uh, into the learner ecosystem way too many blended opportunities so with a lot of activities a lot of assignments lots of videos um very little um trainer engagement but that's what they were looking for they were looking for a way to make their training a lot more asynchronous um, and it was a, it wasn't a technical job per se, but there were lots of technical pieces. It was a very skilled job pretty much. Mm -hmm. But if, if I would have had the opportunity to understand that the learners had, um, not as high a level of capacity for understanding some of these things, I would have built that experience a lot more interactive, a lot more hands-on. Mm. Um, also this was 2016 2015 and so learners didn't really have a lot of um experience with blended anything and so like i just i over designed it um all kinds of things in storyline so it was like all of the things that i'd learned like with my storyline challenges the, the couple <laughs> weeks prior i put everything that I could into that learning experience because I was really, really proud of my ability to do blended learning. I was really proud of, and I wanted the kudos, which is why I say that when you're doing blended learning, you have to take you out of it. You mm -hmm. absolutely have to, or you're gonna create something that is only gonna be usable for a short period of time. Yeah, don't create it for you, create it for the learner. Yeah, and a couple of the things you've said, that last point, and then also don't overdo it earlier, it, it really 
keys into to that learner-centric model, right? Like this isn't the teacher saying this is all of the ways that students need to learn. It's really putting themselves in the shoes of the learner and saying, what are the things that this person needs and what can they actually handle? You, it's very difficult. My kids had this experience. It's very difficult to go from a fully synchronous, live, in-person classroom to a fully virtual learning experience that's a huge leap it's it's just a cognitive dissonance and and so building around that understanding and saying how do we ease into this what are the most effective methods what are the methods that as you said that you know are going to be linked to principles of learning to the science of learning to what we know you know creates the best learning experience and also connected to your outcomes of your learning experience and the measurements of how you'll, you know, how you'll measure those outcomes. Thinking about all of those things as you start to create this and then stepping into it, you know, with, with intentionality sort of, instead of saying, we're just going to change everything because that's really hard for the learner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Well, I hope that people come away from this with number one, a, a clearer picture of what blended learning is. Like we said when we were starting, it's a bit of an amorphous term right now. It's an umbrella term for a lot of different ways of learning that involve anything basically online. But I I hope that one of the takeaways is a better understanding of what blended learning is and what it can be. And then also for people who would actually go and apply this, some real tips and and some both tips on the pitfalls and tips on the positives of how to make this work based on our experience. Like I said, Sharina's had years of experience doing this in a classroom. I've had years of experience working with blended learning back when I was at traditional education. We both worked in uh, in this here at Thrive DX. And so all of this is based on what we've learned and, you know, what the what the research has shown on the effectiveness of blended learning. Just one more thing to leave you with. It is a really effective thing if it's done well. It's, it's, it's a very powerful experience if you do it right. And so creating a blended learning experience that is learner-centric, that does tie back to the learning principles, the learning science, all of that stuff that we've been describing creates a learning experience for, this, for the students that in many ways is a more powerful experience than a live classroom would be. But I, I think this sort of stigma that's come along with it has been a result of this pandemic that you know, you're, you're experiencing something in this abbreviated form or this you know, too quick form. We have to throw something in place you know, to, to keep the learning going. Blended learning can be so much more than that. And, and so I would encourage you to, to really just go out and, and learn about this, learn about what it could be. We are certainly not the only experts or even the most expert on this. And, and there's tons and tons of evidence that, that this can be a really effective practice if it's done well. Well, Sharina, thank you so much for taking the time for this. I really appreciate your time and great conversation on this. This is a lot of good stuff. Well, thank you for inviting me and thank you for having me. And it, it was, it was a great conversation. Awesome. All right, everyone else, thanks for listening. Thanks for learning with us. Take care. Did you enjoy this podcast? Please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you found it. And I hope you'll also recommend it to your friends. 